That was very nice. Uh, you, you obviously don't know me, uh, <laughs> so uh, thanks for that. Uh, thanks uh, also for identifying my uh, place of origin. I've been asked tonight uh, in brief succession whether I'm from New Zealand, whether I'm from South Africa, uh, but no, indeed it is from the uh, former prison colony of Australia that I hark. And uh, it's great to be here and to have unshackled myself to, uh, to be able to speak to you. Uh, we've actually been over here in the UK for getting on near four years now, my wife and I. We've doubled, our, we've doubled ourselves while we've been here in three years we have with, with Grace and Jonathan, as you said. And uh, it's an absolute pleasure for me to, um, to, to be a part of this ministry of uh, the Zacharias Trust and the Oxford Centre of Christian Apologetics. Um, Spent most of my working life as a lawyer in the exciting uh, area of commercial law and then later constitutional law in Australia. A couple of years as a teacher as well, um, teaching religious education. But the last, last couple of years, I, I, what I do is I spend most of my time in largely unchurched settings at universities, workplaces, pubs, uh, speaking to people uh, about the Christian faith. Uh, and giving them an opportunity to throw all their tough questions uh, at me. And uh, as you can imagine, that's a, a job that requires lots of prayer. Uh, but it's also immensely fun. And from time to time, I get the pleasure of visiting churches as well and, and just having conversation and doing talks with, with, with Christians, uh, strengthening each other as we, as we chat together. Tonight, uh, you're right, that is the topic that I at least have planned, is to talk on science and faith. Uh, as you know, uh, when it comes to uh, being able to talk about our Christian faith with other people, it's not uncommon for those who uh, may have had little experience with the Christian faith uh, or may be you know, either interested or wanting to challenge to throw up some tricky questions. Now put up your hand if you've ever faced a question from someone that relates to the issue of science and belief in God. Okay, wow, quite a lot of people. It is one of those ones that comes up from time to time. And so I want to talk about whether or not science does in fact somehow, uh, has somehow done away with belief in God, has somehow buried God. Um, you, you might be happy to know that my view is that it hasn't. I just thought I'd get that out of the way. Uh, but I want to explain why, and, and the idea is to, to pass on some practical ideas uh, so that hopefully by the end of tonight you can go away with a few ideas, a few things that you could say if you got into a conversation about science and Christian faith. Does that sound fun? Great, all right, I'm going to pray too. Lord, I just pray for your... Um, Enabling and anointing of tonight, I just pray that everything that's done and said is done for you, for you and for your glory. And I just pray that you'd help each one of us, wherever we're at, in our relationship with you or just thinking about you, to really go deep in our thinking, to, to think through these important issues that have such a profound implications for our life, this, this life and the life to come. So we thank you for this time. In your son's name, amen. So you had Sharon here last week, Right? Dr. Derricks, and Frog on Sunday. You're going to remember if you had Frog with a name like that, surely. So Frog was here. Did Frog at all tell you about the, the, a story about a man who thought he was dead? Does that ring any bells? 
Okay, I can't believe that he didn't. All right, I'm going to tell you this story because it, it relates a little bit to this whole question of, of Christian faith and, and the rationality of Christian faith. There was a man who thought he was dead. Uh, as you can imagine, this was very difficult for his family, and very troubling. So they tried to convince him that he wasn't dead, but they couldn't convince him. So eventually, they're pulling their hair out and they say, okay, let's, take him, let's get some professional help. They take him to a psychiatrist, a renowned psychiatrist. After weeks and weeks of help, the psychiatrist cannot convince this guy that he's not dead. So the psychiatrist is even pulling his hair out. Eventually, the psychiatrist, whose reputation is on the line here because he's had a good record of curing everyone of whatever ailment they have, says, right, if I can convince the man of one fact which, if true, would mean that he is not dead, that would work. So that's what I'm going to do. What fact can I, can I come up with? Okay, here's a fact, he says. Dead men do not bleed. Dead men do not bleed. So he goes to the guy and says, are you willing to agree with me that dead men do not bleed? And the guy says, you know, I'm not sure. So he goes, oh, okay. So he takes him to the embalmers. He takes him to the morgue. He t- takes him at textbooks. Eventually, the guy says, okay, I, I, I believe you. Dead men do not bleed bleed I'm convinced as soon as he said that you can imagine what happened the psychiatrist opens his drawer pulls out a pin leaps across the desk sticks the pin in the man's arm blood spurts everywhere the guy looks at his arm and says oh my gosh I don't believe it dead men do bleed after all (laughs) now why would I tell you such a ridiculous joke you ask Um, the reason is this Religious belief in general and Christian faith in particular is often characterized in the media and and particularly by new atheist writers as a belief that is very akin to the belief of this man in the story. In other words, it's it's a, a, a belief that we stubbornly cling to despite all the weight of reason and all the weight of scientific evidence against it. In other words, we have a blind and a ridiculous belief. Now, this is one of the reasons why apologetics, which Frog and Sharon have introduced to you over the last couple of weeks, is so important, and particularly for our young people who are probably, more than any other generation, most influenced by the writings of the new atheist writers, people such as Richard Dawkins and Sam Harris, that have had such an influence on on popular culture. Which is why I'm going to take a second to do some shameless advertising for an apologetics youth conference called Reboot that is coming up on the 26th of September 2015 in London where we get hundreds of uh, teenagers and young people descending from all over London to come and study apologetics and be equipped to intelligently respond to the questions that their peers are asking them at school and at university. Uh, There are flyers down the back for this reboot, and it's on the website. But enough of my shameless advertising, let's get on with the talk. What is the relationship between science and belief in God? Is it possible to be a serious scientist and yet still believe in God? Or has science somehow disproved God's existence so that clinging to belief in God in the year 2015 is a bit like an adult believing in Santa Claus or the tooth fairy. Now I just want to let you know that I've tried to make this talk accessible uh, to non-scientists 
because I myself am a non-scientist, I'm a lawyer. Put up your hand if you too are a non-scientist. Yeah, well done. Put up your hand if you're a scientist. Let's pray for these people involved in this, <laughs> this devilish work uh, that they do week to week. We'll pray for you. We'll, no, that's not the direction I'm going in this talk. <laughs> Personally, I've always been interested in science. I am, as you can probably tell by looking at me, a bit of a geek. Uh, I, I, somehow I topped my classes in physics and chemistry and maths in my A-levels, yet I ended up going on to, to study very different degrees and end up being a lawyer. But I've always retained uh, an interest in science. And from a young age, one thing that's always motivated me is the question, what is true? What is reality? What is really real? Uh, I, as a lawyer, I think it's also the case that, that I place a high importance on the value of evidence, on reasoned argument, uh, and these things are helpful in a discussion about science. But my, my aim is to hopefully demonstrate that it's possible to intelligently and persuasively engage with the questions about science and Christian faith without needing to have the knowledge that you would as a scientist. So that's where I want to take things. The other thing I should point out, and this is actually quite encouraging, is this. If you've ever been in a conversation with a scientist who is not a Christian, about your faith, and the topic gets onto the topic of science and faith, it can be very intimidating, can't it? Because they're a scientist, and you're not, and they know much more than you. But here's something I, I need to tell you that a lot of scientists don't like to share with other people, which is this. Outside of their specialized field of knowledge, scientists are just lay people like you. Outside of their very specialized field of knowledge, scientists are just lay people. Uh, those who study physics at the highest level, hopeless at biology, generally speaking. So that, anyway, that's just a little bit, that might be a little bit helpful when you're having a, a conversation with someone. But I come from a completely uh, non-religious uh, family background, uh, but I've always been interested in truth. When I went to uh, high school, to secondary school, I started doing religious education classes. And it's during religious education classes that I realized that I, as a, as a student, was being told two uh, competing different things about this world and what it's all about. We're told at least two very different uh, stories about us, about who we are. And both of them can't be true. The first story that we hear is this, that you and I are here completely by accident. You and I are here through a random, unguided process of time plus matter plus chance. We live for a few decades if we're lucky and then we die and then we're dust and that's it. End of story. The second story I was being told was that you and I are not here by accident. We're here on purpose because somebody wanted us to be here. We're here because somebody loved us enough to put us here. Now, even as a 14-year-old, I realized that the most important question in my life was which one of those two stories is true because the answer affects absolutely everything. If there is no God and our lives are just some sort of freak cosmic accident in a universe of blind and indifferent forces, then there is no transcendent purpose to our lives. 
And without that transcendent purpose to our lives, there is no ultimate meaning, nor is there an ultimate reference point for deciding what is right and what is wrong. What's more, any sense of a moral choice that we actually have in any situation is actually, if this is true, just an illusion. So that whether we choose to hurt someone or to heal them, uh, uh, to torture or to care, to, to hate or to love, the fact is, it doesn't matter because as a number of atheist writers put it, we're all just dancing to our individual DNA. And how could anyone be possibly blamed for doing that? But if there is a God, it changes everything. It means that we're not all here by accident. It means that, that life is sacred, it's full of meaning and purpose and dignity, and it means that our choices in this life really do matter, both now and for eternity. So it's a big question. Has science buried God? Does science uh, uh, explain everything? Well, science hasn't buried God. What I plan to do is to, is to tell you this. I'm going to give you three reasons why I think it is, three simple reasons why I think it is that science has not buried God. And then I'm going to give you three ways in which I think science actually points to God. So three reasons why science has not buried God and three ways in which science actually does point to God. Now, the first reason I'd like to give you for why I think science has not buried God is this. Many world-class, it's a fairly obvious fact, but many world-class scientists are in fact Christians. Many, many, many. I remember sitting in one of uh, my classes at, at, at university with uh, Professor John Lennox, uh, Professor of Mathematics at, at Oxford and Philosopher of Religion, who just casually mentioned that there are about 14 members on the physics faculty who, uh, who, who believe in God and go to church. And I just realized, hold on a sec, that's a lot of people. And we're talking about brilliant, brilliant minds here, brilliant scientists at the top of their game at a world-leading university. And in such a climate, you will find professors who believe in God and go to church who are also world-class scientists. What does that mean? Well, it means at least this, that it's rather simplistic just to say uh, that science has obviously disproved Christianity when some of the best scientists in the world are Christians. We're talking about people who are much smarter than most of us here, at least me. Now this is where people get confused. Because they think to themselves, I thought there was a conflict. And the reason that you might be confused is because there is a conflict. But the conflict is not between science and faith in God. The conflict is happening at a worldview level. Let me try to explain it like this. You can have an atheist who is a scientist who can be doing brilliant, world-class, cutting-edge science. You can have a Christian who is a scientist who is doing world-class, cutting-edge science. In other words, there's no inherent conflict between uh, the Christian worldview and science, or even, even atheism worldview and science in terms of being able to do great science. The conflict doesn't lie at the area of the practice of science. Where does the conflict lie? 
It lies at the area of worldview. It's a worldview conflict. It's a conflict between one worldview, atheistic naturalism, which asserts that there is no God and everything can be explained uh, in terms of physical causes. In other words, uh, the sum totality of all reality is just, it's physical. And there's no supernatural, that's it. Atheistic naturalism, purely physical universe, no supernatural, no God. That's one worldview. Another worldview, a theistic worldview, there's a God who created this. So there is a conflict between the atheistic naturalistic worldview and a theistic belief in God worldview. But there's no conflict at the science level. Does that make sense? Conflict up here, no conflict between the Christian worldview and science. So that's just the first reason why obviously science hasn't buried God or hasn't somehow done away with God. The second reason I want to give is this, that the practice of science actually makes more sense if the universe is created than it does if everything is here by chance. Why would I say something like that? Roll with me here. Two assumptions underpin all scientific endeavor. The first is that the universe around us is ordered and intelligible. In other words, what goes up must come down works on a Monday and a Thursday and all the other days of the week. There's order, there's regularity, and I can understand it. It's intelligible. You must assume that in order to do the practice of science. So, assumes one, the universe is ordered and intelligible. The second assumption is this. You have to assume that what your brain is telling you about the world around you is true. You have to assume that you really are sitting there listening to an Australian talk to you at the moment. You have to assume that what your brain telling you is telling you is actually true. You can't get off the ground unless you assume that. So two assumptions, the world around us is ordered and intelligible and our brains are ordered and intelligent. Now I know that's more of a stretch for some people than others, but uh, yes, uh, uh, my sister for example. Oh, but anyway, I'd, you've got to, just got to, I've got to assume that. Now, think of this. Which of the two worldviews, atheistic naturalism or Christian theism, which of them better supports the idea that the universe is intelligible and our brains are intelligent? The first one, the one which states that we are here through, uh, as a result of a random and unguided process, uh, 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 unguided uh, process of time plus matter plus chance, or the one that says that there is a rational and intelligent mind that brought into existence a rational and intelligible world and filled it with rational and intelligent people, people made in his image. I say it's the second one. It's very difficult to explain how it is that from purely physical jigsaw pieces going together, together the universe, somehow the physical elements could transcend themselves to suddenly know they exist. It's very difficult to say that mind, which is surely greater than matter, is somehow that we've moved from the, from the lesser to the greater. It makes more sense if we are in an intelligible universe and our minds are intelligent to assume that there is an intelligence 
behind the fabric of the universe, sustaining it as it is. Now, the, that's the reason why. It's not, it's not an historical accident that modern science was birthed under a Christian theistic worldview. It's not just an historical accident. There's a, there's a reason. Uh, science, the practice of science, flows from Christian understandings of the universe, which is why when you look at people like Copernicus and Galileo and Kepler and Newton and Boyle and Pascal, these were scientists who believed that science was possible because the universe is intelligible and because there is an intelligible mind uh, which created it with order and design. You contrast that with a naturalistic worldview. How can we believe in the intelligibility of the universe if everything is random? Someone once put it something like this. If our brains are nothing more than a random collocation of atoms resulting from a freak combination of time plus matter plus chance, how can we be sure that any of the conclusions that it comes to are true? The practice of science, the assumptions which are required to do science, make far more sense under a Christian theistic worldview. The third reason I'd like to give for why it is that science hasn't somehow just done away with God is this. Um, It's that science has limitations. Science has limitations. And good scientists know the limitations of science. Um, Science is wonderful. Science is amazing. Uh, I was just chatting to uh, one of you guys here who's involved in in science, looking at at finding vaccines for for different diseases and stuff. Science uh, is wonderful in terms of what we can discover and learn about the universe. But it also has its limitations. For example, uh, science can tell us the exact physical Um, and chemical composition of a man and a woman. But it cannot tell you whether this man is uh, in love with that woman. It might tell you some stuff about biology and all sorts of stuff and pheromones, but it cannot... There's no experiment you can do to determine if there's love there. Yet you would say that love is one of the most important things in life, yes? It's beyond the remit of science. Science cannot speak meaningfully about something as important as love. Likewise, science can demonstrate many useful things, but it cannot, for example, prove or disprove the existence of God. If it could, I wouldn't be here talking to you because we would all know and everyone in the world would know uh, the answer. The science is limited in that respect. Science can tell you the what of life, but it can't tell you the why. Let me try to give an example. Is there anyone here who's good at, at mechanics, motor cars, fixing engines and stuff like that? Anyone who's pretty good at tinkering with engines? Anyone? One man. Well done, sir. Well, it's a, it's a lost art in today's age, let me tell you. Now, let's say I was to give you uh, uh, an engine of a car and lots and lots of money and time, uh, do you think in 20 years you could sort of work out what each of the parts in the car do and how the, uh, how the engine works? Yes, I think you could too. I have confidence in you. Now, having spent uh, 
20 years or whatever it takes to work out how all the different components in an engine work, would you have disproved the existence of, say, Henry Ford? What do you think? No. Why not? Well, you've only increased your knowledge about the design of the car. That doesn't mean that no designer exists. Similarly, if I gave someone a, a computer, an iPhone, and said, just, you know, here's 20 years and lots and lots of money, and you were uh, quite technical, I think you could figure out how all the different parts work, but you wouldn't, at the end, have disproved the existence of, say, Steve Jobs. That this is where the confusion comes in. It's to confuse mechanism with agency. Science is great at figuring out how all the different components of the universe work, from stars and solar systems to quasars and quarks, but that doesn't prove or disprove the existence of a designer behind it. Can explain the what, but not the, the why. Does that make sense? So there are three reasons I've given for why science hasn't done away with belief in God. Reason number one, uh, there's no conflict. Many world-class Christians are scientists. Reason number two, the practice of science actually makes more sense if the universe is underpinned by a rational intelligence than it does if it's just random and unguided. And reason number three, science has limitations. And so it cannot, by its very nature of what it does, prove or disprove the existence of God, of a designer of the universe that it can study and learn about. So that's the negative side of things. Now I want to go into the positive now uh, and talk about uh, three ways in which I think science actually points to the existence of a creator God. Uh, the first uh, way or clue I'd like to look at is to look at the origin of the universe. So um, the greatest question in philosophy is arguably why is there something rather than nothing? Have you ever tried to imagine what this universe would be like if it wasn't? <laughs> Have you ever tried to imagine nothing? Do you know what the definition of nothing is? Aristotle's definition of nothing is nothing is what rocks think about. There you go, that's a technical definition of nothing. <laughs> But there's no reason, there's no reason why there had to be a universe. There's no reason why. It could have been that there wasn't one, but there is one. And the big question is, why is there one? Well, philosophers tell us that there are only three possible explanations for the existence of the universe. Explanation number one is that the universe has always existed for all eternity. It's just always been here. Explanation number two is that the universe popped into existence by itself. Just uncaused, popped into existence by itself. Reason number three, just keeping the language simple, is that the universe was brought into existence by God, by what philosophers might call first cause, the unmoved mover, God. Either the universe has been here for all eternity, or it popped into existence by itself, or God brought it into existence. There's only three possible explanations. Come up with a fourth, and you're on your way to a Nobel Prize. Share your prize money with me. So, three possible explanations. Now, if you're interested in what scientists have to say about the origins of the universe, it's only been in the last uh, few decades um, that scientists 
uh, well, modern physicists tell us that, in fact, the universe has not been around for all eternity. We know that the universe had a beginning. How they worked that out is very technical. They look at latent radiation in the universe and the increasing expanding rate of the universe and all sorts of stuff. But the conclusion is the universe had a beginning. That rules out the first option, leaving only two options, that the universe either popped into existence by itself or it was brought into existence by God. Well, science also tells us that nothing which is physical exists without a cause. Um, this glass, um, what do you call this? Rostrum? Le lectern. It's physical. I've just checked. It has a cause. Uh, the chair you're sitting on is physical. It has a cause. You are physical. You have a cause. You should know what it is if you don't ask someone older than you. All of us have a cause. We're physical. The universe itself is also a physical universe. Um, um, an energy matter universe, a physical universe. The universe also being physical also must have a cause. Well that eliminates the second option that the universe popped into existence without a cause by itself leaving only one explanation uh, that um, God as the cause of the universe. Now even a 12 year old is going to ask the question well, then who created God? It's a pretty good question. I don't know. That's where I get stumped. No, just kidding. <laughs> well, the, answer, the response is this. There is no scientific or logical reason why it is that God must have a cause because unlike the universe, God is not physical. In other words... There must have been a cause for this physical universe, but that cause must in and of itself be not physical. It must also, of course, be highly intelligent, highly powerful, highly creative to be able to have created such a universe as this. In other words, when you run through the explanations, the only explanation that makes logical sense when you remove that which is impossible is that this universe was brought into existence by a non-physical being of immense intelligence, power, and creativity. Sounds a lot like God. Now, for a lot of people, the idea that God created the universe just sounds fantastical, incredible in the real root meaning of the word, unbelievable. But from a purely rational perspective, it's the only explanation available. And as Sherlock Holmes once said, once you remove the impossible, whatever remains, no matter how improbable, is the truth. It's a great quote. So that is one way, it's, this argument is called the cosmological argument, this is one way in which uh, science uh, actually points to the existence, modern science actually points to the existence of a creator, designer, God. Well, the second way in which science actually points to the existence of a creator, God, is this. It's known as the... Uh, what scientists call the fine-tuning of the universe. Uh, this universe is fine-tuned, everything in it is fine-tuned. You can turn to the person next to you if you want and say, you, my friend, are finely tuned. Uh, there is a fine-tuneness. <laughs> it depends how well you like them and how well you know them or how well you want to get to know them. Anyway, stop distracting yourselves. Um, 
Modern physicists tell us that they have discovered, again, this is just the last few decades, this is taking advantage of what modern science has to say. Scientists have discovered that the universe, right from the very beginning, right at the very beginning, was finely tuned for life. What do they mean by that? Let me illustrate um, <clears throat> by example. Uh, for, for example, uh, scientists tell us that if the force, this is just modern physicists, not necessarily Christians or anything like that, but they say if the force of the Big Bang at the beginning of the universe had been any greater or any lesser by a factor of 1 over 10 to the power of 60, uh, then the universe, if it had been greater by that fraction, would have expanded too much and it would be, everything would be too disparate and we wouldn't have any life at all. Not just no human life, not any life of even the most primitive level. If the force of the Big Bang had been any less by a fraction of 1 over 10 by the power of 60, then the universe would have quickly collapsed in on itself and we would again have no life. But they tell us that actually the force of the Big Bang was exactly right. Within that very small margin, it was exactly right. The precision, when I talk about a small margin, which they're talking about here is absolutely astounding. Uh, 1 over 10 to the power of 60 is a fraction of 1 over 1 and 60 zeros after it. When you start getting a fraction so small, science, mathematicians start talking about mathematical impossibility. Now, this is just one of, of quite a few. 40, 50, they're discovering more of these constants that independently had to be exactly of this certain magnitude in size or power, otherwise the universe would be incapable of producing even the most primitive forms of life, let alone life so amazing and wonderful and complex as us. Again, for example, gravity, if it had been any greater or any lesser in magnitude by 1 over 10 to the power of 40, no life. But it wasn't, it was just right. Uh, if... Um, <clears throat> uh, the ratio of electrons to protons in the universe had been any different by 1 over 10 to the power of 37, no life. But again, it was just right. Uh, if uh, um, Dark energy, uh, if you're interested in what that is, it's what causes the universe to expand at an increasingly faster rate. If it had been any greater or lesser by 1 over 10 to the power of 120, we would have no life. Now the thing is, you only need one of these constants, just one, to be off by the very, very smallest of margins and we would have no life and yet in each and every case, each of them were precisely what was required in order for there to be life. Now, the other amazing thing that physicists tell us is that there is no reason at all, um, uh, no logical or scientific reason why any of these constants had to be finely tuned for life. They just are. The significance of uh, these scientific uh, discoveries is this. <clears throat> this is the big take-home point. If the universe is, in fact, unguided, if there is no God, it means that each of these constants had to be exactly right just by chance. But for them to be right just by chance, as we know, given the numbers, well, what is the chance that they'd be right? Well, the answer is mathematical. What is the chance that they would be just right each and every time 
if they're unguided, if there's no God. The chance is mathematical impossibility. Times mathematical impossibility. Times mathematical impossibility. Times mathematical impossibility for each and every one of these scientific constants, which is just right. In other words, it's mathematically impossible that the universe just happened to come into existence, fine-tuned for life, by chance. That's very persuasive and powerful evidence pointing to the existence of God. Um, If you're in a conversation with someone, and you might ask, what do you think, just off the top of your head, is the chance that there is a God? They might say, I don't know, 50%, 30%. If you're dealing with a skeptic, they might say, 1%, 0.1%, 0.001%. You can say, well, that's interesting. You know, have a look at the scientific facts here. The chance that there is no God is 0.0000 mathematical impossibility times mathematical impossibility. The thing to bear in mind here is this that this is not just Christians coming up with these numbers in order to uh, try to point to the existence of God, It's, it's secular scientists. Uh, and, and it's readily admitted that there's no reason things had to be this way. This is why someone like uh, the physicist uh, and, and atheist, Sir Fred Hoyle, has said, as an atheist, just a common sense interpretation of the facts would suggest that a super intellect has monkeyed with the physics. That's from an atheist physicist. A common sense interpretation of the facts would suggest that a super intellect has monkeyed with the physics. So that's the fine-tuning of the universe, something we didn't know about, say, 60 years ago. Now, the third uh, way in which I think science and what we learn from science helps point to the existence of God is simply this. Uh, It's the overwhelming impression of order and design in the universe. Now, on one level, at the basic level, you don't need to be a scientist to just observe the overwhelming impression of order and design in the universe. You take something as simple as the human hand. Um, it, just, just hold your hand up to your face and just have a look at your hand and just observe it doing what it can do. Have a look at the hand of the person next to you. If you like them, hold their hand. I'm just joking. Just joking. All right. <laughs> If you look at your hand or anyone else's hand, what you see is even just something as simple as a human hand evidences the overwhelming impression of, 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 of design. You, that works whether you're looking at the anatomical level, whether you're looking at the macroscopic level, whether you're looking at the telescopic level, where you, whether you're looking at the, at the microscopic level. At all these levels of life, we see over and over again the wondrous impression of design whether it's some beautifully looking galaxy in, in some place billions of light years away or whether it's the, the, the tiniest things that you can see through uh, an ele- electronic microscope, these things are amazing. So the argument then is really quite simple. It's actually been around for a while. The argument goes like this. When you see, if you're walking in a forest and suddenly you come across uh, roses which are neatly ordered in a row, and then daisies, and then petunias, and what other obvious flower that quickly comes to my mind, I'm not a... (laughs) And they're all ordered and geometrically spaced, etc. You see the garden, you just rationally infer a who. A gardener, exactly. 
similarly, given that the world evidences an overwhelming impression of design and order, is it not rational just to infer the existence of an orderer or a designer behind it? Paul Davies, a British astrophysicist, states that for him, uh, there's powerful evidence from his field of science, as a scientist, there's powerful evidence that there is something going on behind it all. In his words, the impression of design is overwhelming. Similarly, if you were to continue your country jaunt through the forest and you were to open, get out into a field and then you would come, come across an encyclopedia laying on the ground, would it be rational to infer that, aha, there's this uh, encyclopedia, it's probably here because uh, a nearby paper factory exploded in a nearby town and the paper and the ink and the glue kind of all bind, bound in the air and, and sort of landed like this. Would you infer that? Hopefully not. Now, why would you not infer that? Well, I think at least one reason is this. When you pick up an encyclopedia, you see information. Lots and lots of complex information. It is rational when you see information to infer an intelligence behind the information. Similarly, if I was to slice a bit of Mike's arm and bring it up and put it under, I won't do that, and I'll put it under an electric microscope and we were able to look at his DNA what you would see there is that DNA contains more intelligent information than rooms and rooms and rooms full of encyclopedias is it not rational to infer intelligence behind that information as well Anthony Flew who is a who was a former uh, he was a, a professor of philosophy he wrote it now seems to me that the findings of more than 50 years of scientific DNA research have provided materials for a new and enormously powerful argument to design. So you can see here that far from science having somehow disproved God, as is sometimes misrepresented in the media or at the popular level, conversations at the pub, school classrooms, television programs, at the popular level, it's sometimes misrepresented that science has just somehow disproved the existence of God. At the highest levels of academia, people don't say that so casually as if it's an obvious fact. It's, it's not. Quite the opposite. Science, actually, particularly modern science of the last few decades and all that we've been able to look at in terms of the origin of the universe, the fine-tuning of the universe, and DNA research provides us with enormous clues that point towards the existence of a creator God. Now that's why, uh, one of the reasons why Anthony Flew, who I quoted a moment ago, Anthony Flew was the world's leading academic atheist when he was alive. If you studied uh, in academic circles the arguments for and against the existence of God, you would know Anthony, Anthony Flew, foremost academic atheist, it's these reasons, these scientific reasons, the evidence are the reasons for why he converted from being perhaps the world's foremost academic atheist to a believer in God and he admitted that he changed his mind in light of the evidence. The irony of our age 
is that even with this knowledge that we have now of the origin of the universe, fine-tuning of the universe, DNA research, the irony of the age is while there are many world-class scientists who are Christians and whose belief in God is strengthened and supported by all that modern science has been able to tell us about the origins of the universe, there are many, excuse me, many non-scientists who continue to speak as if science has somehow disproved God. Many want to... Many people want to, want to believe in God, but because they've been told falsely that science has proved that there, is no, that there is no God, they just think, well, it just can't be true. So a lot of people don't look into it at all because they've been led up the wrong path. Julian Barnes, uh, who's a, a writer, in his memoirs, entitled Nothing to be Frightened of, captures this quite well. He says this, He's now an atheist. He says, I don't believe in God, but I miss him. The Christian religion has lasted because it is a beautiful lie. He sees the beauty, but he thinks it's a lie. A beautiful lie. It's a tragedy with a happy ending. Yet I do miss the God who inspired Italian painting, French stained glass, German music, and English chapter houses and those tumbled down heaps of stone on Celtic headlands which were once symbolic beacons in the darkness and the storm. But now I believe, what is man anyway? Simply a mass of neurons. The brain is a lump of meat and the soul is merely a story the brain tells itself. I think about death daily. I'm roared awake and pitched from sleep into darkness, panic and the vicious awareness that this is after all just a rented world. Awake and alone, I'm utterly alone, beating my fist on the pillow and shouting, oh no, oh no, oh no, in an endless wail. Oh no, oh no, oh no. Where, where does the pathos, where does the strength of feeling come from? It's, it's the conflict between his head and his heart. It's the agony of the heart crying out in protest against the cynicism of the head, which says that all this talk about God and heaven is just superstition and fairy, ta fairy tales because that's what so-called intelligent people have told me. But our hearts are a clue to the deeper realities of life, I think, and our hearts still speak to us. And they tell us something. They tell each and every one of us, because we're made in the image of God, they tell us this, that there must be some overarching meaning to this existence. Our hearts tell us, we know, that we are more than merely meat and chemicals. We know we really do have a soul. And sometimes our hearts are smarter than our heads. <laughs> Can we really believe that all we are is just meat and chemicals? Uh, if that's true, and our physical brains really are just simply a product of blind, indifferent chance then why should we believe anything they tell us, including that we are just products of blind, indifferent chance? When you compare atheism to Christianity, you see that the atheistic, naturalistic worldview is, is intellectually inferior. Uh, it's far too reductionistic. It doesn't have enough explanatory power to make sense of the external world of, of this life, the origins and the fine-tuning of the universe, and it's also insufficient to explain and make sense of the deep cries and existential hungers of the human heart. I, I, you know, I, 
I haven't always been a Christian. I looked into it. I was trying to work out what's true in life. What's reality? What's this life really all about? Just in my own journey, looking at all the different worldviews and philosophies and religions and things that try to explain what life is all about, I know of no other worldview that has more explanatory power, in other words, that makes better sense of the realities of the universe around me and the complexities and realities of my own human heart than the Christian worldview. What is the heart of this Christian message that we have to share with people. It's a message that we're not alone in this universe. We're not here by accident. We're here on purpose because a God of love wanted us to be here. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you not only give us the encouragement to use our brains and to think but you command it to worship you with all our heart soul mind and strength thank you that we can worship you with our minds thank you that we can go deep on the deep questions of life including the academic and the intellectual questions father we feel when it comes to sharing you uh, in a world where there is a lot of misunderstanding where there is a lot of uh, challenge to the Christian worldview and to your existence we feel at such a time as this who is possibly worthy who is possibly able who is possibly up for this challenge but I thank you that in you we have strength and I pray that for each and every one of us that you would strengthen us and equip us and uh, to be more prepared to be able to deal with the tough questions. I pray from uh, now uh, and the Q&A that we're about to have, Lord, that, that, that each and every person would be able to take something away that would be useful, that would help them in their journey and their own strengthening their own faith and in conversations with others. And I, also I pray if there's anyone here who may have thought, I think it's beautiful, um, the idea of God dying in my place, Jesus living the life that I should have lived, dying the death that I deserve to die, giving his life for me, that it's beautiful, but they just thought, I just can't be true because of science. <laughs> Lord, I pray, would you speak to them and bring them home. In your name, amen.